Welcome to the Be Insider podcast. Today's guest is Gerald Benishka. We're going to talk about AppSec, Agile, and the route into this type of career. Let's dive straight in. So today we've got Gerald Benishka, who is an AppSec specialist, coming to talk to us about what AppSec and DevSecOps is. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Gerald. Hello. For anyone who doesn't know, tell us what what you actually do. Well, at the moment, uh, I'm contracting with uh, a client that is, um, we shall call it the uh, premier tax collection agency of the UK. Okay. Uh, I'm doing AppSec there. Essentially, we look after all the public facing things that that you get when you submit your taxes and applied for child benefit and all all kinds of things. So there's lots of of things and lots of um, potential for mischief, obviously. And the kind of stance to security that that sort of HMSC Digital has taken is to to sort of they have the, the a platform security team which looks after all the infrastructure and making sure the firewalls are right and you know all the all the good stuff they're the ones who will complain to you if you're not using Bitwarden as your password manager you know the thing that that, that gets your traditional security very exciting now I I've come to AppSec from a developer background I basically started finding little issues in in the code and talked to people and did it again and again and again. And then uh, they said, well, why don't you do that full time? We kind of, they had the idea or the the intuition that the code that is being produced by about a thousand engineers on the platform, that there may be some patterns which are less than ideal. And they had that with with one particular thing, and they, they sort of found some holes, and then they went, "Well, we we would we'd really like to look at what else we can find." So on a day to day basis, I basically have a, got a big stick that I poke the code with, and go and try and find patterns that are, that that could be exploited. I also look after all the the dependency vulnerabilities. So we've got some lovely tooling, and uh, we've written some some of our own uh, software to sort of manage this because one of the things that I heard at the last uh, B-Sides Newcastle, which was very, which stuck with me, was there are about 78 new CVEs that that are coming out every single day. So there's a there's a tidal wave of new vulnerabilities that, that just appear to, to actually manage that to sort of say, yeah, just patch them, I think is actually unrealistic. The other interesting stat that was at that talk was that about 95% of those don't actually get exploited. So if you imagine that there are 70 different teams, a thousand different engineers, and a thousand different microservices, uh, all you'd be doing is to patch day in, day out, and you wouldn't actually do anything that the business actually pays you money for. So one of the things that, that I've done is I actually look at all the vulnerabilities that are coming in. We've got uh, some software from our uh, artifact store that tells us which vulnerabilities have been found. And I read the text and I know because of the patterns that we're using in software development, um, we're using specific uh, specific framework, we're using a specific language, there's a lot of vulnerabilities where I can just just by the text go and say, well, that doesn't actually affect us, which means that I'm cutting down uh, the number of vulnerabilities that people 
actually have to look at by that 95%, which is quite advantageous because it's, it, it saves everyone uh, time and I can be there and, and walk people through, you know, oh, and this is how you could, could exploit it. So I try to do the same thing with looking at code, looking at logs. One of the things that we're trying to do, for example, is that the logging platform that we've got, where every engineer can log in and look at all the logs that, that things are producing, don't have any personally identifiable information in there. Because of the size of the, the teams, because there's a, a large number of people on the platform, you don't really want to you know, have anyone and everyone looking at you know people's bank details or national insurance numbers and addresses and so i've developed a few ways of sort of checking all the logs to say can i find gmail.com if i do then the indications are that somewhere is leaking email addresses one of the interesting things is once it leaks into the logs the logs are often backed up to somewhere. So you don't actually know, it's it's not just the logs that you have to worry about that something might leak into. Because if if the logs are sort of backed up in a, in a bucket and then some other engineers might have access to that bucket. And if there's one engineer that's a bit peed off and, and doesn't like you and, and sort of all gets blackmailed and sort of says, right, give me access to something, then that might be a problem. But essentially I try to, to basically make sure that the software that is being produced is safe to a certain extent it's interesting because it's not just you know where do you draw the line is it just you know can i exfiltrate some data or is it you know if this software misbehaves and and brings the database down and the database is being used by other software you know that's more site reliability engineering but it kind of also sort of you know, it takes in. One of my favorite uh, topics to talk on is, is denial of service. Denial of service can happen accidentally. It could be an outage, Cloudflare or yeah. data center somewhere. Uh, it's also interesting to, that you can have things that look like, oh God, somebody is attacking us. Uh, but in actual fact, it's just a misbehaving client that is just redirecting to itself. And there's actually, you know, sometimes you can have bugs that cause something that look like as if you were, you know, somebody sending you a lot of requests. We had had one the other day where WhatsApp, the link unfurling that you get to sort of show you a preview, didn't particularly um, deal with HTTP sessions. And we had some codes that if you don't have a session, it creates a session and then redirects you to the same page. But because WhatsApp didn't maintain that session, it just redirected to itself over and over and over again. And I think there were a few people that uh, that we drained their battery because they were sending hundreds of thousands of network requests. So that was that was cool. But not not you know not technically an AppSec issue, but it's it's something where you go, it looks like some something that is attacked. I should say at this point, I probably should have said this earlier. These are my opinions, not HMRC's opinions. I am a scummy contractor. I am a consultant. So that's what I do on a on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm in, in quite a lucky position that, that I kind of make up what I sort of try to do and try to sort of essentially all I, what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis is try to find problems, find people to deal with the problems, 
and then try to think about well how can i how can i automate that because i don't want to be the person who finds all the problems i just want to make sure that we do find them if we can create tools or scripts that do this um, say for example the, the the poking around the logs that i do on a daily basis rather than doing this manually and typing in the search team uh, terms every day and i have got some scripting that that goes and does that and then i review the output of the script and if i find something interesting that's when i go in with the with the stick and sort of poke it again yeah rather than bringing every alert to the team and exactly because i mean one one of the the best things about alerts is that there is only a certain amount of alerting that, that humans deal with if you get more than I don't know there should be studies around this but if you you know if there's some if the same alert uh, appears in your channel every day nobody's actually going to look at it after the first they're just going to go oh yeah it's this other problem yeah it always tells us that we ignore that switch that off <laughs> and if it's all really noisy then nobody's going to look at any alerts anymore because it's like oh well it's the alert channel and then the, what's the point of alerting if nobody looks at alerts it's like with um, cookie messaging. I'm pretty sure you could change the cookie messaging and certain people would just keep clicking accept, accept, accept because they, they're so used to seeing that now and you've got to click that to get to the next stage. Yeah, it's easier to say yes than to say no, isn't it? Nice little segue there, like you say, into contracting. So have you always been a contractor? And what difference? What, what's the difference to anybody who doesn't know between contract and pro? Well, yes, I've, I've been a contractor for 20 years. I kind of fell into it because after I'm originally from from Austria, I, I came over here to study and and stayed. I did a a sandwich degree, uh, which meant that I had a year's worth of industrial placement. I quite liked that, so I stayed along, which was a small company in Liverpool. Then they went under, so I moved to some something else, which was a company in Manchester. Then they closed the Manchester office at just about the same time as I decided to go traveling to New Zealand for three months. So when I came back, the company that closed the Manchester office decided mm, they might that they actually like what I was doing and they need some support. And uh, I was doing Java development at the time. It was a sort of local government forms company. And they offered me a contract and said, you know, we, we need you for a bit. We can't offer you a job because, you know, you can't go to the office. So they offered me quite a, quite a, an attractive rate. And I, I just said, yeah, why not? And I've sort of stayed contracting ever since. And it's it's actually interesting because to me, from the looking from the outside in into sort of contracting, the the difference always was oh as a permanent employee you've got job security you've got uh, personal development plans and appraisals and all this nonsense yeah holidays and as a contractor yeah hot paid holidays uh, and as a contractor you basically run your own business and you you sell your skills and expertise to to clients who then will depending on what they they need you for will will use you and 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 then you know, when they don't need you anymore, get rid of you. But over my now, what, 25 years of, of experience, I've not really seen a difference between permanent employment and contract employment because I've had contracts where I've been in the same place for four years. Yeah, well, if you look at your current contract, you've been there almost seven years, well, six and a half years, haven't you? Yeah, and I also have, have experienced things where, you know, 
uh, offices get closed, businesses get taken over, so a permanent job can disappear just as quickly. And we only have to look at the, the, the current situation in the tech sector where there's layoffs left, right and center. So I don't think there's a, from a sort of job security point of view, I don't think there's much of a, much of a muchness. Yeah, I think, well, from a, well, there's, there's two questions that I'm probably going to ask you in quick succession. <laughs> from a career progression perspective, you started as a software developer and fell into security. T tell me how that happened, because that would be something that somebody as a contractor might worry about, that they're not going to advance their career, but you clearly have. So, so tell me about how that's happened. Well, uh, so I it all started with a Java deserialization vulnerability that I found because somebody had commented out something in the configuration file so that they didn't have encryption for something during local development, and then they accidentally committed the change and it got deployed into production. So clear passwords sort of thing? No, it was, it was essentially there's a, there's a payload gets, it contains a, a Java uh, object that got deserialized. It gets put on, onto the browser as a parameter. It gets sort of fed back in, uh, the server deserializes it. Uh, and because it's no longer encrypted, you can create your own um, payload that is the realized Java and then use all the gadgets. Okay. So I was always interested in sort of finding little issues, uh, but it all started with the fact that I just found this one line of configuration entry, which was commented out, which disabled uh, encryption. And I sort of kind of went, well, what, what can I do with this? Is this actually a massive problem or is this, isn't this a problem? And at the time I didn't, I was always interested in, in you know writing software properly, making sure that you know some uh, hooded type teenager can't just go in and, and um, trash your business. But it was really interesting to sort of spend some time and say, right, what can I actually do with this? And it led me to one thing led to the next, to the next, to the next, and I sort of then went, this is actually quite exciting. It was that it's almost like a rush. That you sort of have when you first have that you sort of find something and it's clearly a bug and it's clearly something that wasn't meant to be abused that way but you managed to do it and you know it's the age-old thing you pop open the thing and you run it locally and manage to execute the calculator at which point you know you know that you've got something that could potentially be, be, be quite serious in order to to communicate that i wrote it up and it was around that time that I fell into sort of writing my blog. I found some something else and wrote it up again. And then I shared it with uh, some people at the consultancy that I, that I work with. So just to explain a bit about uh, consultancy, I'm, I'm a contractor. I contract my service to a consultancy who then have clients. So theoretically, I go from engagement to engagement. It just so happens that I've been at the same client for quite a while. Which is actually really nice because you end up getting to know lots of people. You're getting to know the tech stack. You're getting to know all the different quirks of how a system works together. And I think there's there's something to to be said about you know having contracts that, that last for a while because you reap the benefits. Because if you just have short term people that you bring in, they spend the first three months trying to work out what they actually need to be doing, and then the next uh, three months trying to work out how to do it effectively and then they leave and move on to the next engagement and you know you've just 
spend a ton of money on something that if you have a bit of continuity uh, sort of gets you gets you uh, advantages having said that the the nice thing about being a contractor is that you did you by design get exposed to lots of different uh, ways of working be it public sector be it private sector there's lots of different uh, kinds of problems to solve be that in security be that in software development it's interesting though that you've got such a long engagement with HMRC, which isn't a fan of contractors having long engagements. But is that because it's via consultancy? Yes, yes. Uh, basically, I think the the contract is a sort of long term thing. The consultancies sort of come in, and and I think it's it's something where personally the culture that that has been created there at HMRC Digital is nothing short of amazing. I mean, these were the kind of people who stood up the job retention scheme so quickly as well so so quickly during covid yeah it went from bag of a cigarette packets design which was around the same time as the chancellor announced it at, at the dispatch box to millions of people uh, logging on in four weeks now that's exciting that's the sort of work that gets developers excited i would imagine it is, but it's it's also interesting. And if I if I can just go off on a complete tangent, I happen to think what is exciting work sometimes needs to be reevaluated because one of the most fun bits that I had was when you look at the description of what I did. It looked it it sounds boring as anything. I lifted and shifted some software from on premises to the cloud and these were some well heavily used bits of um, uh, software so but it, it was all legacy stuff it was all 10 year old software it was all very complex it wasn't using the latest. I was just going to say probably very complex and it was all code that was like over 10 years old that you'd think well nobody really wants to work with that kind of stuff but actually it taught me a huge amount of things it taught me about sort of going in and sort of you know i think there was like seven million lines of code wow and you can't just go in and say yeah i'll just read them all you can't uh, and you can't go in and say oh well i'll just write tests for them all because the test coverage was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. That's also not gonna work. so you have to be very uh, deliberate in how you approach th things you can't just go in and say oh that's not using the latest um library i'll just rip that out and put the latest one in and it'll all be fine no it won't uh something will uh, subtly break i think as well with legacy code like that you don't know what's relying on what so you can't just take things out like you say a bit at a time without knowing the interoperability interchangeability between the lines of code and that's that's a, that that sort of taught me a very interesting skill. It's it's it, the the ability to go in and try to understand the system, to do almost like code archaeology, if you like, is is a very transferable skill when you think about development, which is sort of making software, and security, which is breaking software. Yeah, talk me through obviously with that program to move to, with with a fellow scheme, for example. Is this where AppSec comes together, developer or, or DevSecOps? you know, putting product, yes. putting software live into production, working hand in hand. How does that work for anybody who this is a new phrase for? So the to me, the, the whole 
uh, the concepts of DevOps, DevSecOps, Agile, if you like, are pretty, uh, I kind of view them relatively interchangeable. And the definition that I like to use is, is going back to the, the Agile manifesto. I'm not so much a subscriber in, you know, Scrum or Kanban or whatever Agile framework you get, or God forbid, safe, which is not agile. I don't subscribe to to having something. The, the, the purpose of agile is to, and the, the, the main value statement out of the manifesto, which is people over process. It has to be something that works for you. It The processes aren't there to be followed blindly. The processes usually are there to give you an idea what good looks like, uh, but that might not work for you. And it's all about bringing people together uh, to, who work as a team to create some software. Again, I'd, I'd like to, I, I often use or abuse, shall I say, the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule is, 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 is often quoted, but I like to use it, I like that software development is 80% social and only 20% technical. Okay. It, it is about how, how you work together as a team because Nobody, no software gets created by somebody sitting in a dark room and hacking away at code. The bit that takes, puts the code into the computer, if you like, that's the easy part. The complicated part is getting something together that works, getting the ideas together that, uh, that work. Because it's very easy, and you can probably these days uh, just ask Jack GPT to, to generate you some code. And at the end of it, you will have something that works, but will it be the right thing? Will it be working as you wanted to, as you, as you intended to? That fundamentally is, is a social exercise because you have to translate what the requirements are into something that the user wants. No, actually, not what the user wants, what the user needs. Because the user can say, I want a black widget for, you know, putting something in, but then they actually find out, well, yeah, that, that, that kind of works, but is it what I wanted or is it what I needed to do? That's the tricky bit about uh, software engineering. And the whole, the, the, the impressive bit about that job retention scheme, the COVID response was that uh, there weren't any shortcuts taken. It wasn't like, oh, well, we, we just knock something up and it, it, it works. Um, the impressive thing about the way that HMSE sort of digital software gets created, it, it follows the GDS standard. Uh, the GDS standard is the government design system. It's also about how software gets created. Software is created based on user research. So it's not just somebody in an ivory tower thinks that's what users need. It's about actually talking to people. And this wasn't like not done because we didn't have much time. It was done in a way that sort of concentrated the timeframes, and that was that was something to behold. And I'm I'm actually quite proud that there was something at the at the very last minute they had an issue, and and we wrote a service in in three days, you know, at the on the weekend before it uh, needed to go live because there was one component that might have fallen over because we didn't realize there was a a throttle on a particular uh, backend code. And we're sort of it's insane when you think how fast that is and what people don't i suppose know or or think about with software is there's a usability element you know w w when you interact with a website 
there's so much thought that goes behind accessibility, colors, you know, use making sure that interface is as easy to understand as possible. Because when you think with some people accessing the service, this might be the first time they're interacting. If, you know, if, if you're self-employed for the first time and you're going into your government gateway portal, that might be the first time you've ever seen that service. There's so much that's there that you don't think about. You just go, oh, that, this website is slow today. Or yeah, yeah. Why can't I find this? Yeah, and it's 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 really it's also really interesting how many how many different pieces need to work together and need to work together continuously. You know, it's 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 one of the other things that is interesting is that you know there are people that on the twenty fifth of December on Christmas Day file their tax returns. If some of the things does don't work on on a date, you know, people will complain. So you know, if if I can't log in look into the system uh, at two o'clock at night i can't just take the the site down and say oh well you, you, you don't need to log in because we would just say now there are times when the only way that you can upgrade something is to sort of say right we need to shut it all down yeah and it's normally done overnight yeah but it, it but it is it is a mindset because if you build the services so that you don't actually need to shut it down then that's what you do. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that I've learned was that deployments overnight are actually a really bad idea. You want to, to build something that you can deploy at will and that you can deploy during Continuous deployment, hours. continuous integration. Yes. So this is the DevOps principles. Exactly. So, yes, I, th I think somewhere 20 minutes ago, you asked me about uh, DevOps and DevSecOps. And to me... I was talking about the Agile Manifesto, so it's it's about making sure that you do what works for you. But it's also building things in small steps and getting a really fast feedback loop. And to translate that how security comes in, traditional you know security models which will rely on a product gets built, then it gets tested, then it gets you know the security people uh, take a look at it and say no you can't do that you can't do that you can't do that and it's not going into production it just does not work anymore because in order to work in a sort of iterative way in order to sort of say we want to get fast feedback from users you need to be deploying multiple times a week you need to be able to deploy at the press of a button you don't want to have some sort of change management process that means that you need to you know create a, a cab meeting in two weeks time and then everybody comes along and discusses whether this should go in you don't have the time anymore i don't think you ever really had the time no but someone somewhere thought it was a good idea Someone, someone thought it's a good idea, and it's it's all it's always interesting that when, and I've seen this in so many places now, that when something goes horribly wrong, the first thing that the first knee jerk reaction is always, we need more process, we need more you know people to approve something because that will that will fix us, but when you actually look at some of these change approval meetings, people don't understand what they're being asked to approve. If there are so many of them, then it just becomes a tick box exercise and it, it, it improves absolutely nothing. And it just makes things slower more, more, and more bureaucratic. So to me, development teams want to deploy frequently. I think that's, um, that's where 
the DORA metrics come in uh, really uh, interesting. What are they? Now, the DORA metrics, um, right, DORA, I think, stands for DevOps Research Something. It was all based on a an very interesting scientific report uh, led by Nicole Fosgren, who found that there are some metrics that indicate when software is done well. Uh, and there's four key ones, although I think recently there might have been a few more, um, which is about what is the mean time between, uh, what was it, uh, mean time between failure? It's how long it takes you to fix stuff. How often do you deploy? How long does it take from something, some idea being created to, to go into production? And essentially, the, uh, they've shown that the more frequently you deploy, the easier it is to get to fix problems. The quicker you get something from an idea stage into production, the smaller the steps you are. The smaller steps you've got, the less complex it is. The less complex it is, the easier to, it, it is to get it right. And I think there's, this is this feeds into the way of sort of working in an agile fashion to have those fast feedback loops, to have those uh, small increments. And I think security, and that's where DevSecOps comes in, that you bring security into that loop. When you work in a small and quick uh, succession of steps, then I think it becomes easier to, to sort of say, okay, well, I can look at it uh, holistically, I can sort of don't have to sort of go and inspect every single bit. You can kind of work in a small and deliberate uh, fashion and secure each of the steps without having to say, no, you need a security specialist and it needs to be handed off to security before anything can, can go out. It makes sense to sort of not have security as an afterthought to be hand in hand with developers. Yes. I mean, I think, I think there's an interesting, an interesting balance to be struck. I don't think to say, and I've heard this before and I cringe every time I hear it, to say security is everybody's responsibility usually means it's nobody's responsibility. The, the idea being that, oh, we just rely on the developers to do everything securely and they should be, co they, they should be coding everything uh, right. And as long as we give them secure coding exercises, then they'll understand everything. No, I, that's not right. I think security specialists need to be there to, to, to focus on what are the kind of things that could break stuff. They're the ones that can help with threat modeling. They're the ones that can help with analyzing vulnerabilities to say, how can stuff affect us? They're the ones that should be there to advise uh, people to say, you know, oh, I've, I need to do something. How do I, how do I do it? They're, they would be the ones that look at things as, you know, are you applying encryption correctly? Are the things that you're using, you know, up to date? Because unfortunately, Stack Overflow will, t you know, if you look at an answer, how to encrypt something, you might end up with something that is not actually secure anymore. Yeah. Well, like you said at the beginning, if there's 70 vulnerability CVEs being released every day, if we're making security the developer's responsibility, they're not going to be doing any development. They're just going to be over overwhelmed with the amount of information of what to do first. It has to be the security function's responsibility. 
but security awareness should be everybody's responsibility. And at the same time, you can't put, say, oh, security is just the security team's responsibility because they don't have the bandwidth to inspect everything and check everything. And I think that's where it gets it gets really interesting. I think there's no absolutes. No. We, we can't, no. There, there are, it depends is such a well-known <laughs> phrase because it depends on no two environments the same. Absolutely. And that's, that's where I think that another one of my um, personal gripes is when security is treated as something that is a tick box exercise, it's usually, it usually ends up being very bad. And unfortunately, I think often somebody gets very rich from providing the tick without adding any value. If your security relies on an annual pen test, at the pen test company then comes in for two days to try and understand the service that a team of 10 developers have spent two years writing, you're not going to uncover all the problems. You're going to spend the two days kind of pointlessly clicking bits and kind of running some automated scanners and missing really, really big issues. And I think, don't get me wrong, uh, pen tests are really, really valuable when done right. When they're brought in in order to, you know, run an automated scanner and then, you know, copy paste the report into something then, uh, and then charging, you know, thousands of pounds for the privilege, it doesn't improve security. It gives you some sort of, you know, nice warm feeling. We've done, we've passed security testing and I've done it often. Yeah, we've passed this year. And I've done it often enough where I, where I went and looked at some pen test reports and went, let's have a look. Oh. They've missed this, they've missed this, they've missed this, they've missed the next thing. But I can do that because I've got, I've got the context. And the thing that adds value is, is when sort of uh, security specialized companies come in and then advise me and sort of review what am I doing? You know, am I doing the right thing? I, I don't know that, which I think is, is something uh, that that leads you on uh, leads me on to something that I think is is quite important for for people who start out asking questions and sort of verifying whether you know am I doing the right thing or, or learning again takes me back to that 80, 80 20 rule it's a social thing the easiest way of learning is to talk to people to ask questions yeah to sort of check and this is the case whether it's developers who are asking security. There's nothing worse than if you have silos where the development team is developing something and they never talk to uh, security or a security team sits and, and sort of checks their vulnerability scan reports and says, oh, this, this CVE with score eight, uh, eight has not been dealt with within 48 hours. We can, cannot allow things to go live without understanding how these things are used. Communicating, collaborating, that's how you can make informed decisions on what to do and how to to sort of deploy the limited time that we always have you know it's it's if we had a ma magic wand that gave us you know 50 hours 50 hour days uh, then we could probably do a lot of the things that we want to do but without yeah, that 
sort of focus security on has to be a business enabler it has to be there and at some point a risk will get accepted that you might not agree with but if the business accepts that risk we're gonna deploy before our competitors deploy this but on the next iteration on the next deployment that's where we'll implement updates that's a business decision isn't it it is it is and and i think uh, it's really important, I think you hit the, the nail on the head there, to say that security is a business enabler. Nobody writes software in order to write secure software. You, you write software to create some value, to yeah. have something that people find useful or, sim or, or simplify something that people need. And security needs to have the mindset to sort of say, I want to enable that and reduce the risk of that going horribly wrong because um, at the end of the day you know we do have gdpr with with some clause you know yeah all kinds of interesting re regulations it is a little bit sad that we need all the regulations for people to be forced to do the, the right thing yeah there we are that's a t that's definitely a talk for another day <laughs> i always ask everybody a question at the end for you then has there been advice that you regularly dish out, maybe that, that's been given to you as well, that's sort of sat well with your career? Or is there a piece of advice that you would give to someone who's starting out now who wants to get into security? Maybe, maybe someone who's done the same sort of journey as you as a developer who wants to get more into security. What would you kind of advise? I think probably the thing that I, the one piece of advice which I'd love to give my younger self is to to go to conferences, to go and find local uh, events, local talks, do some talks, write some blogs. It's, it's actually quite a lot of fun. And it's meeting people and listening to their point of view uh, opens up so many possibilities that you, that you didn't even know were there. Because a lot of the, the processes and a lot of the things that, that you learn about, you learn from other people. And there's no better way to learn from from other people than getting lots of like-minded people in the same place and, and listening to them, chatting to them. And I, for the longest of time, sort of when I was a developer, thought I need to be able to work this stuff out myself. Uh, I felt like if I don't know this myself, what kind of failure am I? And there's nothing. Yeah, that classic imposter syndrome. Yes. The one thing that I think the thing about imposter syndrome is that everybody's got it. Um, I haven't spoke. I went to a conference in 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 Amsterdam and spoke to uh, Patrick de Boer, the, who's who's called the Godfather of DevOps, and he told me about the horrible imposter syndrome that he's getting when he's sort of giving talks. You know, if if people people like that can sort of have imposter syndrome, then you know. It's okay to have it yourself. It's okay to feel like, oh, I don't know anything. But in actual fact, when you dig into something that, that you're passionate about or dig into something that you know about, it actually is really quite amazing how much you do know and how much people might will actually want to listen to it. And I think there's no better way of sort of finding finding that than by, by talking to other people who share the same interests and, and, and passion. And at the same time, you get lots of people from different backgrounds and give you a different point of view. And, and uh, you know, diversity is a, is a really important thing that you, you know, you might, if all you do during your 
job is to hang out with the same people from the same team, you're not going to find out all the points of view that might actually go, might actually sort of get you to think. So yeah, that that's probably the the, the biggest bit of uh, advice that I would give is just go out there and find things. For, in terms of security, you can't go wrong with B-sides. Exactly. I'm a big B-sides advocate myself, as you well know. I think you, you're so right, getting different viewpoints. And not everybody's going to agree, but that's also okay. If you walk away from a conversation with a different viewpoint that you might disagree with, at least you know when you go back into your team, your board points, your board meetings or, you know, your technical meetings, the different viewpoints that might come at you as well. So it helps you solidify your your thoughts too. I think, you, yeah, you, you're so right. And B-sides are so welcoming for everybody. You don't have to be in security to go to a B-sides. I, I say all the time, uh, via osmosis, we're converting more people into security where it's typically b-sides on a saturday so people might bring their kids or they might bring their partners who there's always something for everyone there at a b-sides conference there's always non-technical talks as well as technical talks some of them have kids tracks as well so we're slowly getting more and more people okay with security and, and also switching them on to the possibilities of this as a career path at this point i'd also, also like to add it's okay to be a developer and not care about security yeah what what I mean by that is to 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 sort of not care about it and and intentionally write insecure code, but to say, well, I'm I'm not I'm not into I'm not too into it. That's some, somebody else's um, interest. That's also okay. Yeah, I think it's important for for uh, security people to sort of realize that not everyone has got the same passion, and not not everything is 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 a complete um, car crash if if you don't you know know the latest uh, quantum a safe encryption algorithm the thing the thing there though is we've got the OWASP top 10 haven't we that gets you know that that's embedded into development standpoints and even if you think a b-size is going to be too much too soon uh, as a conference there are OWASP meetups most towns now most towns most cities now have OWASP meetups um there's different developer meetups and developer conferences we're seeing security on those topics on on the agenda so it is everywhere but like you say you can have a passion that's development you can have a passion that's testing it doesn't have to be security testing but as long as you're aware of it and, and you can happily converse with those teams as a security person it's important to be able to speak in the language of the teams that you're speaking to and know what's important to them which is exactly what you said with the 80 20 principle i love that i've never heard that before I'm going to claim it that I made it up. Yeah, we'll claim the issue. <laughs> I think the other interesting thing or interesting bit about security is that there is so much scope for security work. There is so much, so many varying things, varying different avenues of, of security. It's, it's, it's such a diverse thing if you think about all the different niches, if you like. I mean, my, my niche is sort of web application security. But there's, you know, mobile phone. There's, there's all the stuff about prompt engineering. There's hardware, IoT. The hardware. There is physical security. There are, there's so many things that that uh, feed into keeping something secure, and so many really creative people that tr try to figure out how to break things. It's, 
I think it's it, get, getting into security is a pretty good bet for a, excuse the pun, job security because there's there's, there's just going to be more and more things that where security or cybersecurity or infosec is going to be a, a really important aspect. And I think you said it um, last time at a conference that there's so so much of a skills shortage. But it is actually not difficult to get into security. It all it takes is is somebody with a, you know, a, a bit of curiosity to sort of say, oh, well, what does this do? What happens if I press this button? One of the one of one of my favorite ways of describing security work is is sort of QA on steroids, or or actually the other way around, where security is a niche function of of testing. And it's the kind of interrelatedness between sort of security and testing and engineering. And, and you kind of, there's so many different ways to to bring stuff to the security table that, you know, it's a, it, I think it's a great place to be in. And it's it's a lot of fun telling people that their code's shy. <laughs> but doing it in such a way that, that helps rather than, you know, it's a learning experience rather it's a learning than telling experience. <laughs> And it's not about blaming uh, people or users or, or uh, developers. It is, it is about trying to make systems that are more secure. Yeah. I mean, I despair every time there's a, a new phishing test at some company that, that tells you to, you shouldn't have clicked that link because that's that's not the right approach. Blaming people for bad security, blaming users for bad security, blaming developers for, for bad security, or blaming security people for bad security isn't going to achieve anything. No. Talking together, exchanging information, trying to figure out, well, what, what are the ways that something could be, be used? What is the context of how things are used? That's the, that's the thing where the, uh, the security treasures lie. I love that. Well, that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much for your time, Gerald. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you for being on the Be In Cyber podcast. It's, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. That was the wonderful Gerald Benishka talking to us about his career. If you've got a story that you'd like to share or a guest recommendation for us, please do get in touch. And if you've enjoyed what you've listened to today, please like and share with your friends.